Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Latin word amago means image. It refers to the unconscious image of familiar love. Developed by our pioneer guest today, Dr. Harville Hendricks and his wife, Dr. Helen LaKelly Hunt, in 1980, Imago Relationship Therapy is a form of couples work that focuses on relational dialogue to transform any conflict between couples into opportunities for healing and growth. Through Imago Relationship Therapy, couples can learn to understand each other's feelings and their childhood wounds more empathically, which allows them to heal themselves so they can move forward toward a more conscious relationship. As illustrated in Harville's New York Times groundbreaking best-selling book, 1988's Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, learning and teaching the Imago Dialogue allows couples to move from blame and reactivity to understanding and empathy. Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt are internationally respected couples therapists, educators, speakers, and New York Times bestselling authors. Together, they've written over 10 books with more than 4 million copies sold, including that timeless Getting the Love You Want that put them all on the map. In addition, as Harville will talk today, he's been on the Oprah Winfrey Show 17 times. We talk about the Oprah effect, which took his approach to the mainstream in a way no other couples therapy had been before. We talk about an amazing origin story as a childhood prodigy, a teenage preacher. Helen's story is equally amazing, the daughter of a famous Texas oil tycoon. We've talked to several couples on the show over the years, but I really had an amazing time talking to Harville and Helen. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as we head into this Valentine's Day week. Certainly two Valentines, Harville and Helen, but they don't shy away from the problems and the obstacles they had to overcome in their relationship to, as Harville says, talk the talk and walk the walk. We'll be back with some exciting news after the interview. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. I am delighted to have a power couple in couples therapy, as I call them, Harville Hendricks, Helen Hunt. They are the pioneers behind Imago therapy, a model you've heard of. And the Pioneer Series has been so special to me the last six years on the AMFT podcast because I get to meet not only people that I've admired in our listeners have admired, but we really learn about the people behind the model. And that's what we're going to do today. Harville 
Your longevity is amazing. You are in your late 80s and no one would ever know it by looking at you or listening to you. And Helen is also amazing in her longevity. So take us back, both of you. We'll start with Harville. We start with the the origin story of how you even got interested in becoming a skilled helper, a relational healer, a couples therapist. I may be mistaken. Were you ordained a minister at 17? So since you're asking to go back, I've thought a lot about how in the world did I wind up here and with Helen and in this position of having developed a couples theory and therapy and it's distributed all over the world. Because I grew up on a sharecropper's farm in South Georgia where we made our living by plowing the land, borrowing money, paying the money back, borrowing it again. And then I finally went and I was, my parents had died. So I was living with a sister and a brother-in-law until I was about 13 when another sister, I have eight brothers and sisters, another sister older lived in a town about 10 miles away off the farm and came out. She didn't want me to grow up like them so that I would have to work for other people. And she wanted to take me to town because it had a really good high school. And so I could make something of myself. And mainly, none of my uh, relatives liked to work for other people, even even though we were sharecroppers. I think that was the reason, because we were sharecroppers. Yeah, and both of his parents had died by the time he was six. Yeah, dad had one, and mother died just the first month into my sixth year. Um, I was the youngest. the innovator. (laughs) And raised by my siblings, who were so poor that they had to apply for social security. There was uh, some kind of social support that if you were taking care of a child, like an adoptee, you could apply. So I remember hearing that my sister and brother-in-law got $20 a month for my support <laughs> when I was on the farm. Look back at that, that wouldn't buy lunch today. But anyway, so I went to town, this small town, 5,000 people, and this sister put me in this high school, which was really a good high school compared to the one in the country. And there was a debate contest and I tried out for it and failed. And the speech teacher said, you're not fast enough to do debate, but you do have a good voice. So I think you should do what they call declamation. And there's a national contest sponsored by the junior JCs so that you have a chance to compete for number one in the nation. So it's not like debate, which is just local in the school. This would be something that you could try out for. But she said, I'll never forget this. You will never win anything with the Southern accent. And she was Southern. The Southern so, drawl. So, the, the draw. She called it a draw. <laughs> yeah. And she was Southern too. So she wasn't criticizing it because she had her own drawl. She just said, you can't get out of Georgia with the Southern drawl. If you would take this on, I will take you on as my student and work with you to clip your words. It'll train your tongue to speak so that basically when I get through with you, nobody can locate you geographically. It'll be more like pure English. Were you insulted by that? No, I I, I was intrigued because I I didn't know until then that I had a Southern drawl. Everybody had Southern drawls. So, So I have something too. And I didn't realize that everybody didn't speak that way. I'm mean, that was how naive I was. I'm only 15, okay? And I've been on a farm, so I don't I don't know very much. 
So she trained me for nine months and also helped me write this uh, speech was going to be recorded so it could be sent to all of the contests. So it'd be listened to locally and ultimately nationally by a panel of judges. So short story is she trained me and got the thing. We did the speech. I won sixth in the nation. And I won a television set, which was the first TV set in our town and some other things and got a trip to Washington. I came back and here's where, I, as I've thought about my career, here's where my career began. My sister went to a church and I didn't care much about it. It was just like she said, we're going to go to church. And I'd gone and had gotten active with young people's group. So very early, I got into being the leader of te teaching others. And I didn't know anything about leadership. It was just, I could talk and I could read and I could teach. So the pastor said, boy, if you can win sixth in the nation, you can speak. I want you to preach the next youth sermon in our church. And it's coming up in about three months. And I said, I don't know how to do sermons. I wrote that speech and recorded it on a tape recorder. And he said, I'll show you. You just have to learn how to tell people what you're going to do it and then tell them you did it. It's three points and I'll do that. So I said, okay, you help me write it and I'll do it. So I got it written and I do have an ability to be charismatic. And I gave a rousing us sermon on Jesus and Jesus love and all that he wanted me to talk about. I didn't know any theology. I just did what he said. And after the sermon, <clears throat> here's where it all began. He came down uh, when I was on my way out and he said, Harville, and then he called me boy, God has called you to preach. And I said, I didn't hear him. And he said, that's the way it goes, that the community receives the call and then tells the person who's received it, if they didn't get it simultaneously, that they've been called to the ministry. And I said, so I didn't hear it. I'm not interested and blah, blah, blah. He said, okay, so you don't have to do that, but I do want you to do something for me. So I go out in the countryside every Sunday afternoon to a little church that doesn't have any pastors and they just want a sermon. And I do four of those. And I'm really tired of preaching here twice a day, going out there in the afternoon. And I want to send you out there to take my place with those little churches. And I said, I'm 15 years old. They said, I'll tell them that you can talk. Oh and my goodness. So I said, okay. And he said, you only have to write one sermon a month because you got there are four of them. You can preach the same sermon four different churches. And I said, oh, okay. So I did that. And he says, and you can start with the one you just preached. And he didn't have his driver's license. Oh, no. So his sisters no, 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 had to no, no. drive him. <laughs> and the story gets better. So, so that is it. True. Is that I can't even, I can drive, but not legally. Because I had gone on the back roads and learned how to drive uh, the car. He said, and you'll get $25. And the short version of this is I had a, an afternoon job and a Saturday job at that time as a soda jerk at a drugstore, I was a soda jerk making $17 working every afternoon after school for three hours and all day Saturday. And then he said $25 and he said, that means a hundred bucks a month. So all of a sudden I tripled my income. So I look back on it. I did it because I wanted the money. So I did it for two years, 15 to 17. And in my 17th year, I was invited to go to a little town, not in the country, but as a country town that had a church of about 300 people and it's called Pine Street Baptist. And they said, 
could you come and do what they call supply preaching? For we, we don't have a pastor. We're looking for one. We need somebody just to come and do a sermon, but we need you to do two Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And I said, I'm busy. And they said, you can still do the afternoon things and we'll pay you $35 a Sunday. So there was $140. Now I've got $240 coming in. And I'm growing up as poor as I did, having money that was flowing in like that for just using my mouth because I'd gotten all my stuff in the past by plowing or picking cotton. So I took that. And after six months, they looked for a pastor. They came back to me and said, we have been praying, Brother Harville, and all the deacons, and we brought it to the church, and we've all agreed that God has called. We can't find a pastor that fits, that we like, and we've all agreed that you are our pastor. Wait, I got to ask you. I train a lot of young therapists. They're fresh out of their undergrad. They're 22, 23, and they look young. You, your audience is, 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 even at 15, you started out in this helping professional role. What was the reaction from these rural members of this congregation to have this kid not old enough to drive, drink, preaching? This is, is crazy to me to hear this story. You didn't have a peers of other 15, 16, 17 year olds to talk to about this and you just did it. So what was the reaction from the congregation? I said the same thing when they call me. I'm a high school student. I go to school and I work in the afternoons and I have these churches. So what is the reaction of the congregations is every church in the countryside that I preached in and they grew as I look back at it because I was an oddity, but I could talk and preach sermons that now I look back at it and I know I was preaching Southern Baptist theology, not the biblical theology. But I was doing it well and doing it with charisma. When I finally took this church, the full-time church, that church had about 200 members in it. And when I left it, it had grown to 400 members. I never heard a criticism. People were just really proud that they had this boy preacher. But this is what's so funny. The gentleman at the church said, God has called you to be our preacher. And Harville said, God didn't tell me. It was the board of deacons. And the way it works is God tells the board of deacons who's their next permanent pastor. Yeah. And it is you. So Harville showed up. <laughs> yeah. So I preached then for about six months for them before I took it, because that was a real shock to go to high school on Monday and stay there till Friday and then come down to this church on Friday night and call on the sick and bury the dead on Saturday and do weddings and all that sort of stuff. But somewhere along the way, I came to terms with it and peace with it and accepted it. I look back at that. And while the youth sermon began all this, becoming a pastor of this church and taking on all these really adult responsibilities, which I knew nothing about. I read books about it. I talked to my pastor. You're right. I had no peers. But I did have a pastor who was very supportive. So I got that going, and that church paid me enough money that I could go to college. College was about three hours away by car. I went to college, left college debt-free, then decided I wanted to study at Union Theological Seminary in New York City instead of going to a Baptist <laughs> seminary. And there, the whole world then just opened up for me. Uh, by the way, up. when I met Harville which I was so excited about our getting married. 
And and even before we married, he took me to meet his family in Georgia. And when Harville told me his story of he got a degree in Statesboro and he had to get on a plane and then he went to New York City on a plane. None of his other family members had ever been on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> One of my sisters who I grew up with in that small town had told me, don't you get too big for your britches, boy. And so by the time I got called to be a church, she said, I told you not to get too big for your britches. So I've been told to be humble all my life. That led to university, I mean, Union Seminary in New York City. Then I went to University of Chicago where I trained, got trained in psychology and theology as my academic degree. And I have a couple of degrees from Northwestern University. We always used to say about the people uh, on the South Side, the University of Chicago, those were the real hardcore academics. So you had this gift of elocution, this ability to speak, but you also were a, a very smart guy despite these very humble origins. It's quite an a, amazing story going from a very rural Georgia to the big city of New York and then Chicago. Let's fast forward. I believe Helen took a class from you. Is that the story? I grew up in a home the opposite of Harville. Uh, my father was similar to Harville in, in that he was born in Illinois and on a cotton farm, and he was the youngest of seven. And the youngest, if you studied birth order, is an innovator. And my father was being homeschooled, and he didn't want to finish getting homeschooled. He just disappeared. He became a hobo on a train. And his family went, where did he go? He wanted to explore the world. And he ended up on the train. He eventually went to South Texas, where there was just a sandy field. And one of the people that he had met said, listen, some of us are playing poker tonight. Why don't you come with us to play poker? And my father went, and um, they were putting as the reward of the, whoever won the poker game an exploration that they wanted to drill and see if there was any oil. And they, my father won the well, and then they drilled it, and it was a gusher. And so my father became, over time... Yeah, um, he went for the richest man. <laughs> unbelievable yeah. story. The high stakes of the poker game was an oil field, and you struck gold. Your father struck father, gold, literally. Yes. Yeah. He, he had no business degree. He didn't have any credentials. But he had oil, and he put around him really smart people. And pretty soon, this South Texas field was the biggest oil field in the world. So I was born in a very wealthy family, just the opposite of Harville. And I was raised in a home in Dallas, and I was sent to a girls' school for my education. You had to pay a lot of money for the girls to go. And all the teachers were white Caucasian. All the students were white Caucasian. And anyway, I, I fell in love with Tom Sawyer and the brothers Karamazov. And I wanted to uh, get a teacher certificate and teach in the low-income school in Dallas. And so my first degree was teaching certificate around low-income stu students. And I just realized there was so much pain when uh, I began to receive money from the family-owned business, 
and I wanted to get a psychology degree. And so this is where I began to study primal therapy. And then eventually Harville was in Dallas at Southern Methodist University. And yes, I was exposed to a kind of therapy that I already knew about, but to get three credits, I went and sat at the back of his classroom and turned in a paper and left. And I didn't even introduce myself to him. How Harville and I met, he was giving a lecture in Dallas at a Unitarian church that had a big garage. And on Sunday, it was filled and they had speakers come and speak on different topics. And someone told me, Helen, you're divorced. I'm divorced. There's a man that's going to do a lecture in this garage about how to have good marriages. So why don't we both go? So I went and I listened to Harville, but I didn't introduce myself to him. But Harville was at a chalkboard. Now, thank you for coming to hear my lecture. This lecture will introduce those of you who don't know to the fact that when you marry someone, the relationship goes through stages. The first stage is, and he drew on the chalkboard, romantic attraction, stage one. And he said, you look for someone you want to spend your life with, and you went, not that one. Then suddenly, oh, this one. And when the two of you agree, you're married. Happy ever after, right? Wrong. Then he wrote power struggle, stage two. Everyone in stage one ends up in stage two. And if you learn a few things, like how to have a dialogue, then people can end up in stage three, real love. Hey, Helen, date us in time here. Approximately what year are we in when you saw him speak about couples and, and the stages of relationships? Probably 1977. Oh, my birth year. I know that year well. Oh, oh yeah. It's an amazing story. Also, when you think of Hunt Oil, another part of your family legacy, I believe your late brother is Lamar Hunt. Every time you watch an AFC championship game and you see the Lamar Hunt trophy, that is Helen's brother and a founder of the American Football League. He was a half-brother. Yeah, he's a half-brother. And I adore Lamar, but there, there was a dad was married to a woman, and she passed away, and she had a lot of kids. And when she passed away, then he married my mother. So then you all get together, you start dating, and at this time we're in the 1970s, a golden age of on the show, we talk about family therapy is uh, in the 70s, but couple therapy lagged behind. And, and you had uh, Neil Jacobson, the late great Neil Jacobson. You had behavioral couples therapy, problem solving, communication training, but there there was not a lot on the landscapes. Harville was a real pioneer. When she saw you speak about couples, were you naturally gravitating that way, Harville, or were you inspired by something you saw or the work you were doing? Before my divorce in 1975, I was a psychotherapist and not interested in couples therapy, even though I was professor of marriage and family therapy at um, the Divinity School at Southern Methodist University. But as you said, and I've never taken a course in, in marriage therapy, <clears throat> still haven't, but they said you have to teach it because you're the professor of pastoral care and counseling. 
And so I studied the literature and went to seminars and this person that Helen was talking about. And we both had been to the Goulding Institute. To, to the Goulding. Goulding and a, learned about redecision therapy. Yeah, and that really TA was impactful on the sentence stems and on imagotherapy. But I got interested in marriage therapy. At that time, it was called marriage therapy. Later, it was called couples therapy because I was divorced. So if I'm going to teach this stuff, here I am divorced. And I need to figure out what's going on with me. Helen was divorced. So having met at a party neither one of us wanted to go to and began to talk, we had some connections there. Yeah, I told him I had been to his class. Yeah. And again, this was a party that uh, someone pulled together divorced guys, yeah. divorced women, hoping maybe they could meet and connect. And that worked with us. So we started then seeing each other, not so much dating at the initially, but seeing each other. And that was serendipitous too, because my uh, theological mentor at, Sh at Chicago was Paul Tilly. And I wrote my dissertation on him and Freud on the concept of anxiety. So Helen asked me that I know a book called Paulus written by Rollo May, who was a devotee to Paul Tillich, and I didn't. So we had to get together to talk about that. But, <laughs> and that led to us discussing, how come we're divorced? And I got really interested in that. Then my academic mind and research mind went into play. So we talked about that. Then we said, why come anybody's divorced? And then, and obviously they're divorced because of conflict. So what is the source of conflict? And we began that conversation that ultimately led me to begin to think about marriage, start reading marriage therapy literature, then discovering in those days, Eli, the success rate was about 38 to 40%. And so clearly that was a field that, that didn't have any Real credibility. Credibility was in psychotherapy and family therapy. So I began to think about seeing couples and studying them. And the pattern that evolved was to ask them what would help them and then take what they said would help them and try it. And then finally found, and this is a long story, but I'll make it really short, that over several years found some things that helped and what didn't help, I just quit doing that was in the field. And the thing that helped, and this is where Imago therapy comes in, Helen and I, I have always had an intense relationship, either positively or negatively. And when we first started this, our answer to the question, why do couples fight was they object to difference, to the fact that you're not the person I thought you were, or you don't have the opinion that I think you should have. So anytime anybody differentiates, you clobber them. And Helen and I were having this huge argument, and we went to her house in the living room, and we were still having it. And Helen said, stop. One of us talk, the other one listen. And no, you didn't say that. You said, one of us talk, take turns, and then the other one talk. Mm -hmm. Not even listen, just mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. talk at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so we did that, and I was aware, having some clinical sensitivity, that my body relaxed. When I stopped pushing and then we did take turns and she talked and I talked and we talked. So I noticed that and I went to, I had a, and by that time I had a few couples in my practice and I went to the next couples therapy session and said, I'm going to do something different with you all. Instead of you talking with me, which I now call parallel psychotherapy, 
which was the model of couples therapy then, I want you all to talk to each other and I'm going to regulate that. But don't talk to me, talk to each other. And, and so you talk and then you talk. And then I asked them, how's this going? And they said, it's going okay. We're really relaxed. But the, the wife said, I would really like to know if he hears what I'm saying, because that's been my complaint. So I said, how would you like him to regulate? Tell me what I, tell me what I said. So that began the mirroring process. I said, okay, would you say back to her what she said? And she, and, and he got it wrong. And then she sent it again and finally got it right. And she broke into tears. And she said, that's the first time in my life I've ever felt heard. So I noticed this is real. So we kept working with this couple. And what else would you like from him? And also, what would you like from her? And they both came up with the same thing. I'd like to say back what they heard. I'd like him to be curious about what else. And when I finish talking, not to take over, but ask me if I have more to say. And then uh, check and see if, if I make sense. And uh, does he understand how I feel when I have that experience? So over a period of about uh, probably five or six years, I put together out of working with couple after couple, uh, putting in what worked, what didn't work, recording the sessions, listening to them, and finally developed the dialogue process. And by that time, I was in Dallas here. I did a couple's workshop one weekend. I had 12 couples in my practice. They were not moving. So I knew I was not doing something. So I took them out in the woods to a camp. We spent the two days together and I worked with them. And all but one of those couples moved dramatically forward. So I knew I had something else there. And that was, it's really good to put people in groups. And so I started doing that. And I'm, you're talking, I just want to educate our listeners. If you don't know, Harville is talking about really the core thing that Imago Couple Therapy is known for, the dialogues. And he's talking about this organic process where he learned from the couples he was working with. They basically taught him how to do the dialogue, which many couples therapy models have reflective listening or speaker listener, but this is a, a, a way to do it. And the interesting thing about this story is much like most couples therapists would say, well, I'm not going to do anything that wouldn't work for me in my relationship. So you and Helen are passionate in love and passionate in war. So you would come home and refine this, not only with your couples that you were working with, but also with Helen. And we'll talk about Helen's contribution to the model as well. That's exactly right. We practiced everything I learned with the couples. And then we would practice some stuff and take what we learned with each other back to the couples. And so that was a long iterative process to get to the awareness that the problem couples have is not their problems, it's how they talk about their problems. And I noticed that if I could change the way they talked, which is put them in dialogue so that they didn't put each other down or accuse each other of bad things, that they finally, be, you could notice, I finally noticed when they felt safe with each other, then they moved to a different part of their brain and could then solve their problems. But up till that point, the problems were unsolvable because the way they talked about them did not facilitate solutions. They, they were operating out of their lower brain instead of their prefrontal cortex is what we would say today. So as Imago evolved, the, the dialogue became the therapeutic intervention. And I think that became the distinguishing and is the distinguishing feature of Imago couples therapy from 
other therapies. They're- now, I got to say, I'm 46 years old, and I have a, a memory of, I was about maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I, I watched a lot of TV, and Oprah was on TV, and even, even I, as a, a preteen, remember getting the love you want, 1988, which really launched this movement. I've interviewed a lot of people, including John Gottman, Michelle Wiener Davis. Oprah really has launched many careers, but I've never seen any way of uh, speaking to couples that permeated the mainstream more than that book. Uh, and I remember have it being referenced all throughout my graduate career. So Talk about the Oprah effect and really, I feel like you were on that show something like 17 times. Talk about Oprah's impact on helping you disseminate this model, this message, this way of talking and the dialogue to the masses. I often think of my life as a function of having wonderful women in it. And one was that sister that got me off the farm. And the other woman was Helen, who decided I was worth marrying. And the third woman is Oprah. And let me say something about me. When I wanted to pick the next person, I married because everyone talked mm. me into marrying the first man who did something illegal. And when I heard Harville talk, once upon a time, there was a man named Socrates that created Socratic dialogue. I had never heard of anyone that did talk dialogue. And I said, Harville, what we've been dating for three years. And what is your dream? What's the next stage? Because I've been watching you teaching these other therapists in Dallas. And he said, Helen, I'd like a book written on my theory. And I said, if you marry me, uh, there is not a book publishing company big enough in Dallas. If you marry me, let's move to New York. I'll hire an agent. The agent will introduce us to publishers, and I'll hire someone. You've made all these speeches. They're going to type out your speeches, and we'll get the book written. And so three years later, the book came out. I received a phone call in our apartment of the Oprah studio saying Oprah wants him on. Yeah. Yeah. And so Helen is the core influence on getting that book crystallized and getting it written. And Oprah is the influence on getting it out to the world. The The first show was just an interview with some couples that I had worked with in Dallas. But it went so well. This is a part of the story I kind of love. I'm on my way to the airport. I have no feedback from Oprah or the producer. And so I don't know. I've never been on a television show before. And the phone rang in the back of the limo that was taking me to the airport. This was Oprah's limo. Back in those days, you didn't have cell phones because this was in 1988. And the phone was installed in the car behind the back seat. And I said to the driver, the phone is ringing. And he said, it's for you. If any time the phone rings in this car in the back seat, it's for the passenger. So I picked it up and the producer, whose name was Debbie DeMaio, said, Harville, just wanted to call and tell you that you were hit and Oprah really liked it and she wants you back and we'd want you back in about nine months. Don't want to do it too often. And when you come back, she wants us to put together a group of uh, 12 couples and we want you to do one of those couples work intensives, the two-day workshop in front of our, our cameras. The cameras will be hidden in the wall 
the couples will know they're there, but they won't be visible. And she wants to film the whole 12-hour workshop. I think this is the first time in pop culture that couples therapy had been fictionalized and dramatized maybe on television shows. But I think the first time a massive audience like that have really seen what the work looks like. So that was really uh, groundbreaking and innovative of her to showcase you in that way and expose millions of people to what couples therapy could look like. That is so true. And I'm still naive at this level of Oprah shows and stuff like that. And she was going to do one 47-minute version, which is about the length of the show. And she said, yeah, this needs two shows, two 47-minute. And this time, Oprah had moved from 20 million to 50 million audience and from local to international. So the second show in which I work with couples in front of the camera for 12 hours and they filmed it all, uh, was cut to two 47 minute segments and she cut out and put in the best stuff and it was broadcast to 50 million people. And at the end of that show, Oprah picked up the book and pointed to it and said, anybody who's out there watching, put out whatever you're doing and, uh, write this down, getting a love you want. This is the best book on relationships ever written. You should go buy it as quick as you can. Blah, 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 blah. Two weeks later, we're on the New York Times bestseller list, went back on 11 times and did 15 more shows over the next 20 years. So the Oprah effect made it unnecessary for me for a long time to do any marketing of my own. It was like I could go anywhere and uh, 50 to 60, 70, 100 couples would show up for a weekend. So it was a big ride. And that's a big overview of how it's all started and where it went to in terms of we're now in 62 countries, 2,500 practicing therapists in 62 countries that are doing Imago relationship therapy. When I think of the model, obviously I think of the dialogues. I also think about the six steps to uh, conscious partnership. We don't have to go through all of them, but I want to know the collaboration since I have both of you back and forth. And I think uh, some couples that they say, oh, our marriage is perfect and this or that. It's like in my clinical experience and in my personal experience of being with my wife for 20 years now, it's like uh, marriage takes work and these are skills. Uh, these are not things you just do once. They're iterative. It's like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it atrophies. When I think of having dialogues back and forth with my wife and the process being more important than the content as we've been talking about there's so much universal, but for you all to normalize and tell your story, you were both divorced. You met as you were developing the model, had your own disagreements and probably still do. So uh, talk about how you live and breathe the model. It's not just something you talk about as you practice what you preach and, and how you have been so successful in staying both professional and personal partners all these years. One of the things along the way, decades ago, is I studied brain science. And to know that when you're angry and when you monologue, you release <clears throat> adrenaline and cortisol, and, and you can't see very well. And using the sentences of dialogue takes you out of the part of the brain that functions reactively, just automatic, like when you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, eventually, and the, and the sun goes down, your body tells you, go to sleep. And after 
eight hours, your body says, wake up and go to the bathroom. The body just tells you what to do. You don't realize how much your body controls your activity, but but that's the automatic part of the body. The neocortex, you have to make a decision to go there. And there's the left brain hemisphere, the right brain hemisphere. And the most important part of the brain that, according to a man who is a real famous brain scientist, Dan Siegel, he said the healthiest part of the brain, and everyone should live there as much as they can, is between the left brain hemisphere and the right brain hemisphere. It's called the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's a very small circle at the very top of the brain where you move beyond predication and you wonder about people. And poor Harville had been married to a woman that every day I woke up and I wanted to improve him and to have him do a better job on his next Oprah appearance, whereas he was doing fine. Also, his desk was messy and I wanted to organize his bookshelves because uh, he's a professional and he shouldn't have a messy desk. And well, Harville didn't want his desk organized and he didn't want his bookshelves organized. And eventually, when I learned about moving beyond predication, I decided to shut up and stop talking and relaxing and not managing Harville, but just ask him questions and wonder about him. That's the part of the dialogue process. Harville, did you just said so and did I get it? And is there more about that where you wonder? And according to Dan Siegel, the dopamine, acetylcholine, norepinephrine that is released automatically from the brain causes a person to sleep well, have a happier day their whole day, and wake up more healthy than when they went to sleep. So if you want to give yourself a gift and the other person you're with a gift, shut up and Mm -hmm. ask them, is there more about that? And just wonder about them and don't try to convince them they're voting for the wrong political party. Uh, I always say wonder and curiosity is the antidote to mind reading, thinking you know everything about your partner, telling them what to do. And people can see each other every day and be strangers to their partner's internal worlds. Yes, you are speaking the truth, Ellen. There's a wonder and curiosity opens up the dialogue, not shuts it down. And with regard to how we have done it, Helen is fully to be credited with the fact that we have the marriage that we've got. Because this, as a professor, you may know this, and I, it's no excuse for those of us who are academics, which is my basic identity, having gone through six years of graduate school to get a PhD, so you become an academic who became clinical, that I came up with and putting all this stuff together, but it was not integrated. So I didn't practice what I preached. And so we had a hard time. And what was about 1997, we were in this crisis and going to probably get a divorce. 1997, 1998, somewhere along there, it just wasn't working because I wasn't working. And Helen was also so integrous that she felt you'd need to walk your talk. And we, being on the Oprah show, doing all this and us not doing it ourselves. So we got to the point where we were polarized 
and had decided. And I, in fact, I think I had picked out my apartment and we we're going to move out. But we gave ourselves a few months to just do this gently. And during that time, this is another sort of serendipitous moment. We decided we would take Thursdays and do something together. We lived in New Jersey. We'd go into New York City. We'd go to bookstores and have lunch. And when the bookstores usually is the, it's a psych session or a philosophy or theology, but this time Helen, Helen said, why don't we do something different and go to the astrology section, the esoteric books? And like, you got to be kidding. But we did. And it was interesting that on the shelf within eyesight was a huge volume, like a thousand pages that was called Astrology for Relationships. So we pulled that down and it was a book that had every, every month, I'm September, Helen is February. I forgot what we are. I'm, I always forget. I can't. Libra. You're, I'm Aquarius. You're Aquarius and Libra. I'm whatever. Libra. Sub, but this essay about when these two signs marry, they are relentless at their scrutiny of each other. And there's a whole essay elaborating that. And Helen and I looked at each other and said, how did they know about us? So we went home impacted by that. Sometimes you say, it's interesting where God decides to show up, this time in an astrology book. And we said, why don't we uh, practice reducing our scrutiny of each other and, and see if we can do that? So Helen proposed we get a calendar and that we put a check mark each day in red on the calendar that we aren't critical of each other and a black X on each day we are. And it took three months for us to have a check. And so that was a real message that our problem was negativity. So then we decided to make a decision that we would go zero negative and and that began to work. And about six months later, we decided we wouldn't, wouldn't go ahead with divorce because we're making some progress by working in some strange way out of an astrological insight on a negativity. And we got to the point where we said, okay, we're now back together. And in December 1999, we had a recommitment, a remarriage, and had a big celebration party in New York City on the Hudson River. And that night at midnight, when our party was getting over, they, all the firecrackers go off. And we incorporated that as all of New York City is celebrating our recommitment. So I think the thing is that what you have to do, and what I really learned is you can't just have a cognitive position and cognitive knowledge. You've got to embody it and do it on a daily basis as a skill. And as an academic, I was not accustomed to going from theory to practice, but could do it for others, but not for myself. Somehow that was difficult. But I think the reason- The walk and talk the talk. Walk, yes, walk it. And by the way, during that time, when we were in the polarity, it was about a three-year period, I, we told Oprah that I couldn't come on back on the show. And she said, fix it. And when you fix it, call me. <laughs> so, so three years later, I called her and she said, great, what about in a month? And on the show, Oprah said, I want to tell you people who this man is and who his wife is. And then she told him our story and said, he's back on the show because he's now walks his talk, a man of integrity. 
So that gave me another credential in the world as not being just a therapist, but a good guy. And it led to one of those six steps of conscious partnership that is foundational to the model now. Activity is non-negotiable. So we finally distributed that to the whole Imago world, and it is one of those non-negotiable steps. We work on it every day. We check with each other every day where we are, and we're working now on how do you really embody real love, which is step beyond and out of the power struggle. And that's our current challenge. And we are still, I would say, students in the process of integrating that to the point so that we can live without the tension of the power struggle, but in the joy of being. And that's a a constant practice in itself and a constant awareness. I always ask these uh, pioneers and model developers about their children and what their children think of what their parents have done. And sometimes it ranges to, oh, that's just mom or dad. They don't even know. But uh, it would be impossible for your children not to know the impact that you all have had on relationships uh, worldwide. So I am curious what your children think of these uh, intertwining careers that you've had. That has been a process too. Initially, I think our children did think it's just mom and dad. and They had no idea what we were doing anyway or what therapy is. And then the children began to uh, hear about us from other people, or they would run into somebody who had seen the Oprah show or read Getting, and they began to be aware that we were public figures. And they were also sensitive to, if y'all are so good at relationships, how come you're not better parents? We had those conversations with our kids, and we finally turned that around and said that we are good at relationships and not perfect, but we want you all to be also. So we have a what's called, Ellen, I think you call it a family protocol that she put together. Yeah, healthy family protocol. Healthy family protocol. And we bribed them into it. Yeah. And I did. I said, no money. I was wealthy enough to give my kids money and they were disagreeing rudely to me to Harville, to each other. And I said, uh, all right, stop it. I, I'm not going to take this anymore. And it was for our children, but we have a daughter and son-in-law who had four children. Six. six. And then, whoops, oh, and five, yeah, whoops, five and six, six. And yeah. they have six. And the youngest is a hellion. And so it, in her family, no allowance, no dessert <laughs> that night if anyone is rude. So anyway, it's been now brought in through a variety of methodologies, and that bribery is one. And I remember we had a group session long ago when we had this ranch in New Mexico, and we taught them the how to do the mirroring and and to go through the dialogue process. And then they began to say, why didn't you bring this in earlier? Because we like this. And two of our old daughters both would say that dialogue has saved their marriages, and they're now willing to say that. Yeah. So the grandchildren have been taught it by our children, and now I would think that that we could call ourselves pretty much a dialogical family, and that when there is an issue, we move into it formally, and when there's not an issue, we still do it informally. We went from, what are these strange parents doing now, to we'll get a call occasionally from one of our children and all of them are also have pretty much public lives, that they run into somebody who has read getting, and 
say, you are the daughter or the son of Helen and Harville. And uh, so they're impressed that they are our children. And I think we say that they actually honor what we've done now and support it. We talk about now your kind of personal legacy and passing this down through your children and practicing what you preach. When you think of your professional legacy and both how you want to be remembered in this field and the future of Imago therapy, which will continue long after you all are gone, what do you want your professional legacy to be and the future of this way of working with couples? Thank you for that question. We are at our age, I'm 88 and Helen's 75. So we know the wall is coming. I had a legacy thought one day about what am I going to do with all these books? What am I going to do with these file drawers of papers, the original ones and the early scratchings? And the same week that I had the thought about what are we going to do with our stuff? We imagined our children would come and sell our books to a secondhand bookstore and burn our file cabinets because they wouldn't know what was valuable or not valuable. A university called Daybreak University in Anaheim, California, the president of this university is, in fact, a certified imagotherapist with, he has business credentials and was in Seoul, a tenured professor at Seoul University in our field, said, called us and said, in building our university, we want you to know that we're building this university. It's going to be a university of marriage and family therapy. It started at about seven or eight years ago, and it's now credentialed with all of the licensing agencies in America and Department of Education and so forth. We are committed to the legacy of Imago. We love Imago. We've been trained by Imago. We give a PhD and a master's degree in Imago relationship therapy in our graduate program of marriage and family therapy. And we want to claim uh, custody of your legacy. So we're building the Harville and Helen Imago Legacy Library at our university, the biggest room at this point. We want all your papers. We want all your books. We want all your videos. We want everything. This podcast and so forth will want that. So he is putting together an Imago curriculum that for the Imago world so that the issue of whether or not a vehicle like an institute or whatever will uh, be around to, and, and, and most institutes of even very famous therapists when they die because they don't have some sort of concrete a grounding in some institution that's funded and so forth goes away. Like uh, transactional analysis is one of the biggest ones. I don't know of a Burn Institute anywhere or TA Institute. It may, it may be around. I just haven't heard of TA in a long time. So he is committed to that. So what will happen is that we will go down in history with our distinction being that that dialogue is what differentiates us because the purity of the dialogue process it's not dialogue and a bunch of other things. Dialogue is the therapeutic intervention. And we will have a concrete legacy at a university, uh, which is committed to not only being there, but he's also committed to beginning to connect with other graduate programs in marriage and family therapy and inviting and shepherding them into making Imago a core part of the curriculum. So we're around the world in a lot of different countries. And he is taking on the issue of creating institutes 
also around the world that would be in affiliation with this university. So it looks like our legacy will be pretty secure at this point. And, and, and I think in about a year, we will have transferred everything to this university, including the custody of the intellectual property, and that we can sit back and relax and say, okay, uh, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Wonderful. Helen, did you want to say anything about that, about your professional legacy, how you want to be remembered? We have a dear friend who 30 years ago came into our life and did a documentary of us at the very beginning. He likes filming us and he did a beautiful one. And then we didn't hear from him. And about nine months ago, we said, we haven't heard from Chris Brickler. And Harville, I think I'll contact him tomorrow, maybe around noon. And the next day at 11 o'clock, he emailed us and said, Harville, Helen, I haven't talked to you recently, and I'd love to connect. No. He is a producer and director of documentaries and has done many of them. Yes. Now he wants to do a YouTube video of Harville and me and of us growing up. And he thinks that he's going to pitch a version of this to Netflix and uh, with the hope that they would want to do a six-episode series. A friend of ours three years ago had read a book on a saint who had got won the Nobel. I think it was Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. And she, she could be in any country, but she wanted to be in the poorest countries in the world to try to help people living in countries with not much money. And Deborah in Southern California was a friend of ours. And she called us and said, Harlan Helen, uh, Southern California has plenty of money where I put things to help people. What I'd like to do is put it into Liberia. And she said, I've been there for about six months, but I I really think our dialogue process you all teach is needed there. And it's become a huge success the last two years. They just had a presidential runoff. And both men were open to dialogue, but one of them was passionate about it. And the one that was passionate about it won the election. And what they did was they had Harville begin with high school principals and high school teachers. So the young people in Liberia were using it. But the older people weren't, and now it's in the government. And they actually, they contacted us this morning and let us know that the man who is newly elected wants Harville and I teach dialogue to the parliament in Liberia so that they all use dialogue. It's an amazing story. We study systems and the dialogue being used in other systems and being used international, a great testament and a great marker of your all's legacy. I, I will say when you're talking about a documentary or Netflix series, I reflect back on our time today, a story of, a, it's not lost on me, a, a young man who was chosen for his ability to speak and then refine and then talk other people how to speak to each other. And a woman of coming from oil tycoon and then went to work with the underserved and now partnered together, as we say, in family systems, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And Harville Hendricks and 
Helen Hunt, you were certainly greater than the sum of your parts. I'm so honored to be able to talk to you today. This is the last question. I leave you with a challenging one. What is something, because you all are so honest and transparent, which is, I think, why you connect with so many people and have been so enduring and uh, talking about your own uh, triumphs and struggles. What is something that can't be captured in a book or you've never been asked on an interview that you want people to know about you all or this enduring relationship? The thing that comes up for me is that we finally got it that dialogue was more than just a therapeutic process, that it was a new way for human beings to talk that was new on the planet. And so we evolved the, we call it from the clinic to the culture, to take dialogue to the culture and we launched a global social movement called Safe Conversations. And that's what uh, Liberia is about, is this Safe Conversations movement is to teach dialogue to the tipping point of the world's population in the next 30 years. And that tipping point is 3.2 billion people. So we have an organization and we're growing a community that will now take this new way to talk, which is dialogical, to civilization, with the hope of changing the value system from individualism into a relational civilization. And I think that's the biggest thing that we want people to know because this is something everybody can become a part of. Learning dialogue, practicing dialogue, teaching it to others until we end the monological age and move into the dialogical age. Yes. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And Ellie, it's really been nice to connect with you today. Yeah, and thank you for your affirming tone. And we can see you as one of that network of people who's going to get dialogue into the culture. Again, you think of the specialness of our pioneer series here on the AMFT podcast is can't complete a series without talking to these two. And I'm really honored that you gave us this time this afternoon. And I can't wait to see the spreading of this dialogue way past a traditional context of couples therapy into society's changing macro impact. And uh, thank you so much, Harville and Helen. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast, the Pioneer Series. Harville and Helen, thank you so much. That was really fun. And I'm going to brag on them a little. So when the interview shut off, they didn't know. They had left their recording equipment on and stepped away, and I couldn't help but overhear. They uh, were really practicing this zero negativity. They were checking in with each other and giving each other such nice, supportive feedback. After all these years, Harville and Helen walking the walk, talking the talk, the Imago dialogue. You can find out everything Harville and Helen at aptly titled harvillandhelen.com. It is a beautiful picture of them on there. I, I hope all of us out there can age half as well as they have. Everything you want to know about Imago, including finding Imago trainings and the Imago Higher Education at Daybreak University, which Harville and Helen told us about, which will preserve the legacy of this important way of talking with couples. You can go to aamft.com to find out everything going on in the world of systemic therapy, including the 2024 AAMFT Leadership Symposium, March 13th through 16th, 
just a little over a month away in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, who wouldn't love to get out of the cold and go to beautiful Phoenix this time of year? In recent years, the crucible of global events has underscored the need for resilient leadership, capable of navigating the complexities of this post-COVID world we're living in, so we can foster harmony at home and drive innovation at the workplace. Our MFT profession is calling for visionaries who can rise to this occasion. So in response to this imperative call, MFT is taking great pride in unveiling a re-envisioned approach for our leadership training. Uh, it's a strategic response poised to confront challenges head on. With our continued focus on leadership development, this program is specifically designed to cultivate leadership excellence. The program is structured to facilitate dynamic interactions with fellow trailblazers and thought leaders, enabling you to confront unique challenges and projects that emerge on your professional journey. So please go to amft.org, join us at the Leadership Symposium, March 13 through 16 in Phoenix, Embrace the opportunity to build an alliance with like-minded other systemic thinkers as we embark on this collective mission to give you the leadership skills you need to thrive inside and outside of the therapy room. I love to hear from our listeners. I'm at www.elikaram.com. You can also get me info at elikaram.com. After every episode, I get good feedback, both on the current installment and what you'd like to see in future installments, including the movers and the shakers in the field of systemic therapy, pioneers like Harville and Helen, and emerging topics. You can also see at EliCaron.com how you can get some training from me, whether you're looking to study for that national licensing exam, whether you like a book format, audio format, or videos preparing for the exam, I got you covered. You can also check out Bringing Common Factors to Life the focusing on what makes effective therapists, how to mobilize client tricks, tap into things like hope and nurture, that all-important therapeutic alliance, book with my colleague and AMFT president-elect, Dr. Adrian Blow. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.